All right, let me just say a quick word about the book of the month before we dive into our um, text for this morning. Um, it's called Who is Jesus? It's got a cool red cover. Um, but the point of bringing it up is that like in past summers, <clears throat> we've tried to pick a book that um, is a great giveaway to maybe people that you know, maybe you work with them, neighborhood folks, um, family members uh, that maybe do not know what the gospel is all about and who Jesus is. So this book is really clearly written, and it's engaging, and it's interesting, and it's short, (laughs) and uh, it would be a great read for you, and then the whole point is read it so that you can give it to somebody. As you're reading it, pray, Lord, who should have this? Who do you want me to give this to? And then give it to them. So that's your, one of your goals this summer is an opportunity to give this book to somebody in your life um, so that they can know who Jesus is and hopefully trust him and follow him. Um, so it, it really is a good read. I've been encouraged um, to read it myself. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of good insights in there, but also very accessible for somebody that doesn't have a church background, okay? So let's pray briefly and then we're going to dive into our text for this morning. Father, we thank you for this day that you've made. Thank you for allowing us this privilege to come freely and worship you together as a church family. Uh, We thank you for everybody that's come to visit um, and join us this morning. And as we now approach your word, I pray that you would give us ears to hear Please give us soft, receptive hearts to hear from you. Lord, none of us need to just hear my thoughts. We all need to hear your thoughts. So would you please open our eyes to see what you have inspired, what you have preserved for us so that we can know you and so that we can know the way to true and everlasting peace. So would you please meet with us and by your spirit be our teacher and would you shape us by your word. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are wired, I think, as human beings to sing in response to great deliverances. Okay, now I know some of you are not singers, you're not really like into the whole song thing, you don't watch musicals um, on the weekend, and so this is like, uh, I'm not sure if I'm following you. Well, I don't care if you don't like to sing, so I was invited to a Phillies game yesterday, and uh, go Phils, okay, hey, I know I'm from Chicago, but I'm, I'm convertible, at least for baseball, um, okay. So there's several songs sung throughout that game. And why? Why does everybody sing the national anthem? Why do we sing other patriotic songs? It's because those songs were born out of either a longing for victory that was sorely needed or the celebration of a victory that was very valuable and continues to be. Okay, so they even had like a kind of a patriotic um, theme where they were honoring um, different veterans and, and so forth. And so um, there's even old 
you know, battle-scarred, hardened dudes that are, you know, they, they would definitely not be watching a musical, you know, this weekend, but they tear up and they sing along, especially if they were in the military and know firsthand the fight for and the cost of freedom, okay? And, and actually, it's not just those guys. You know, it was interesting, I, I realized that Whenever certain players, you know, you'd have a player come to the plate or a new pitcher come in, there was a song that would play. And it was like that guy's song. Oh. Well, maybe he wasn't singing it, although he probably was in his head, but their song would rise when that guy came to the mound or came to the plate. So usually it's some, like, pump-up, you know, power anthem thing or some rap song. What does that song say? It says, I'm strong. Like, watch out, you know, because I identify with this song. This is me. It's my song. Okay? So this morning, actually, we're all wired this way. <clears throat> and singing the Star Spangled Banner is just a dim reflection of the ultimate song, the song that is rising and that we all need to join with all of our heart. So that song is present in Isaiah 26. Um, so if you want to turn there... <clears throat> This morning, since we don't have the screen, there's an outline in the bulletin that might be helpful, and actually we are not going to get as far as that outline in the bulletin says. Um, I was going to try to pull off Isaiah 26 and 27, because 27 is a natural break. I'm not going to be here the next three Sundays. Um, I leave at the end of this week. We have a family wedding in Illinois on Saturday, and then um, on Sunday we'll be, gone, we'll, we'll be going up to Michigan for vacation for two weeks. Um, so anyway, I was going to try to pull that off, but there's just too much in here. So we're only going to focus on chapter 26 this morning, okay? Um, so if, you're, if you've turned there, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can find our text on page 586 in there. We've been walking through the book of Isaiah um, chunk by chunk, and uh, this morning brings us to chapter 26. So, um, the outline, first point, the song in the city. Let's look at verses 1 to 7 here. Um, well, in just a minute. Let me just catch us up to speed really briefly here for those of you that maybe have missed um, recent weeks or you're visiting. So, throughout the last several chapters in Isaiah, we've seen this contrast between the city of man, okay, which is kind of a, a summary way of talking about those who are living for this world, um, this world's values, they reside, in a sense, in, in the city of man, um, where man is at the center, okay? And that city is crumbling. It's doomed to destruction. It's not going to last. But there's also the city of God, those people who trust God and who follow God. They dwell in his city, and that city will never fail. It will never fall. Okay, there's also a fair amount of singing in these recent chapters. Look back at chapter 25, same page there in, in your Bible probably. Verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city, that's the city of man, a heap. This proud city that thought it was all that. Um, the Lord will humble the proud. The fortified city, 
You made it a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Look at verse 5. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. God's going to silence the song of the wicked. Then look at verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. This is at the end of time when Jesus comes back. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe every tear from all faces and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So verse 1, they're singing. In verse 9, they're singing. And then in verse 5, the song of the wicked is silenced. The song of the redeemed is rising. Okay? So these last two chapters, um, 26 and 27, are actually the climax to this second major section in Isaiah's prophecy, chapters 13 to 27, okay? So it's not surprising that we have more about these two cities and more songs. So let's look at chapter 26 here, beginning in verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Here's the song. We have a strong city. God sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Bulwarks are just strong walls to protect, um, like a fortress. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Okay, so in the day, what day is that? Well, it's the day of the Lord. It's the day the Lord's kingdom comes. On the day that he shows up, a song is going to rise. And we will experience, we will enter in to that city and we will sing. So when does that day happen? It's a little confusing sometimes as we walk through Isaiah. When do these things happen? Well, do you remember I gave you the illustration early on about mountain peaks? If you're standing here and there are multiple peaks, you may only see one. Because they're, from your vantage point, you can only see one. But if you actually ascended the first one, you'd see there's a valley and a second one. Right? So here, from this vantage point, you might think it all happens at once. But as you read the rest of the Bible, you see that this began when Jesus came the first time. And it will be fully consummated when Jesus comes a second time. Does that make sense? So let me unpack that a little bit. This song started to rise, we were given entrance to this strong city at Jesus' first coming. So keep your finger in Isaiah 26 and flip to Hebrews 12 so that you can see that I'm not making this up. <laughs> so Hebrews chapter 12, it's on page... 1009, if you get the Pew Bible. So the writer is talking to these a primarily Jewish audience, people that have trusted in Jesus but are in danger of drifting. And he's telling them, don't drift, run with your eyes fixed on Jesus. And then he says in verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. In other words, Mount Sinai. It's a Allusion back to Mount Sinai when Moses um, and the people of Israel came out of Egypt. But look at verse 22. 
But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. It's a party. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Okay, so wait a second. So we, we've come to the new Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem hasn't yet come down to us. Already, not yet. Does that make sense? We already have a new city through Jesus, but everything hasn't been made new yet. Okay? So one day we will fully enter this strong city. Maybe don't take the time to turn there, but all the way at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, so think already, but not yet, as we walk through this passage, um, and it'll make a whole lot more sense. Okay, so look at verse 3. We'll flip back to Isaiah 26 and look at verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. Why? Why can you trust in the Lord forever? Because the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city, city of man. Don't put your trust there. He's going to bring it down. It's going to be laid low. God opposes the proud. He lays it low, lays it to the ground, casts it to the dust, because those who are proud, they're self-inflated, they're, they're puffy, and they're empty. The foot tramples it, verse 6, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. Isn't that interesting? So again, already but not yet, think about this, the great reversal is coming. There are people that seem to be powerful and exalted in this world, but if they're not trusting in Jesus, they will be brought low one day. So even this is already, but not yet. It's only the humble, poor in spirit who enter into the kingdom now. Remember what Jesus said? The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. But then finally, at the end, all the proud will be dealt with, and the Lord will exalt the humble, his people. Verse 7, the path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. Okay, so in that day, this section here in verses 1 to 7, this is like an anticipation. It's, it's a celebration anticipating what God's going to do. And he's already begun that work through Christ. So two cities, the apparently strong, lofty city brought low, rendered powerless, the weak, oppressed city secure and strong. And perfect peace, it says, for those who trust in the Lord. Okay, so look at that, this perfect peace idea. Maybe you're familiar with this verse, but you never noticed it in context. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Literally, in Hebrew, it's peace, peace. Okay? So what does that mean? <laughs> well, there's another instance where peace is doubled in Jeremiah 6.14. Listen, listen to this talking about the false prophets at, at that time. Jeremiah said, they've healed the wound of my people, God, through Jeremiah. He's saying, they healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, 
when there is no peace. Okay? So these false prophets are assuring the people of peace, certain real peace. That's what they're saying when there really wasn't any real peace. It's not true. It's not reality. So this peace here, you keep him in peace, peace. This is real peace. Okay? In fact, I, I think this may be important for some of you. Perfect peace could be a little bit misleading. Do any of you have some kind of like spiritual OCD? Um, maybe you are the kind who are a bit, you're a bit obsessive about being in the center of God's will. And what I mean by that, and what you might mean by that, is you often feel like if you don't perfectly follow the will of God, if there's one little misstep, you might blow up your life. So you're obsessive about this. I'm not saying be lackadaisical about your you know, trust in God, but sometimes the point is not perfect peace where if you're really spiritual, you're going to just be perfectly placid all the time, never ruffled, always unflappable. That's just not true. It means you will have real, true peace, not the false peace that the world offers. It's real deal peace. Okay? So flip ahead to Isaiah 57, and we'll see this, see this um, contrast pretty clearly of what he is talking about here. Isaiah 57, 15, find it on page 617. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. So God had to judge his people because of their rebellion, but he did it to get their attention so that he could heal them. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. Israel was stubborn, just like we are often stubborn. Verse 18, I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. God's grace is greater than our sin. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So the peace that's promised to those who trust the Lord, whose mind is stayed on the Lord, fixed on the Lord, is the opposite of this faux or false peace that the world can offer. This is just not the kind of peace that, that people of this world can have apart from Jesus. Because people in this world can't have peace. And it's tied to their circumstances. Like job security and satisfaction. If you've got that, you might feel like all is well. Or if you've got money in the bank or your 401k is set, you've got circumstantial peace. That's not the kind of peace that is promised here. Or maybe you've got peace because your marriage is pretty decent. Your health is good. You've got compliant kids. 
it doesn't take any grace to have peace when all is circumstantially going along swimmingly. So this is the kind of peace that passes understanding. It doesn't make any sense. Your life could be falling apart and you can have this perfect peace. You can have this peace that passes understanding, this real deal peace because God never changes even if your circumstances do because his faithfulness is there regardless. So, do you know that kind of peace? And I wonder even what what comes to mind when you think of peace. Peace of mind, absence of warfare, you know, you just want a little peace and quiet. Um, Well, I I need to remind us of the Bible's idea of peace. It's, It's much deeper and wider than just peace of mind in the moment, or a little bit of peace and quiet. It's, it's bigger than just merely an emotion or sentiment, though it's inclu- that's included. It's more than just the absence of warfare. So the concept of peace or shalom, if you've heard that Hebrew word, just, that's the word, it's one of holistic human flourishing and harmony. So that only can start when you are reconciled to God through Jesus, when you have peace with God. So Jesus fought and won the greatest battle against sin and death and Satan in order to win us peace with God, reconciliation with God. And when your sin and your guilt and your shame is dealt with, if you're actually accepted and you don't have to prove yourself anymore to the God of the universe or to those around you, that's where peace begins internally. And then that peace starts to flow out from you into your relationships. So, I mean, we all have not kept our own standards, let alone God's, and we've got this guilt and shame, and we oftentimes just try to make up for it. And we're basically doing what we're doing out of kind of a, a low-level existential nervousness or guilt. But when you believe the gospel, you know you are justified forevermore. He's accepted you forevermore. And that brings this settledness and peace that can make everything okay even in the midst of crazy circumstances. And like I said, that vertical piece then starts to leak out and pour out through you and it affects marriages and families and Christian relationships. The family of God is supposed to be unified and at peace. We should be peacemakers and we can be salt and light in that regard to bring peace to this world. So, I mean, I was thinking about this some even this week. You know you live literally on the the brink of eternity. Every single one of us. Even if you're 12. It's just like, do you realize how weighty that is? You are going to die. We are all going to die. And we're talking about eternity we're not playing with a net. There's no, there's no like second chance. There's no like, this is it. This is real. This matters. There is heaven. There is hell. And if you don't have something that deals with that, with your eternity, there's no way you're going to have any real peace, any peace, peace. We, we just, 
we just kind of live in Disneyland, and our, we, we don't want to think about eternity. We just kind of turn up the volume and just keep plugging. And then somebody dies, and we kind of deal with it, and it makes us nervous. We don't want to think about it, and we just, again, turn up the volume. Like, we're going to die. You're going to die. Is this precious to you? Is this promise precious that we can have peace, peace, like real deal, nothing can shake it, peace? The only way you can have that is through Jesus because Jesus is the only one that went into the grave and then came out of it victorious. And he beat sin, guilt. He took it on himself for us. And he rose out of the grave victorious saying, I have the keys of death and hell. I've got authority over that. <laughs> so do you want to try to find your peace in like your 401k or a better job? Are you kidding me? It's only going to be found in Jesus. Really trusting in this God who did everything that we need to be reconciled to him. That is just, that's everything. That is everything, everything, everything. That's what's underneath this kind of peace. So the placebo pill prescriptions of the world are not going to do us any good if you really want real peace. It's like fighting cancer with children's Tylenol. So if you want to really flourish, if you want total human flourishing... If you want life, real life, you've got to come to the Prince of Peace who made war against death and sin and hell and won. Not trusting in him is rejecting true peace and accepting cheap faux substitutes. Okay, so down with the proud city of man. See, that's the thing. We, we, we get afraid of our financial situation and what do we do? We scramble and we start to trust in worldly Sources of security. Whenever you get nervous and antsy, where do you go? Don't run to the city of man. It's, it's a crumbling, condemned house. So down with the proud city of man with its false peace, its futile human efforts in search of, of shalom, the humble city of God is the true haven of peace. We've already come to that new Jerusalem, Hebrews 12, Listen to it. A little further on, don't turn back there. I'll be done before you get there. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You thankful for that? This kingdom is certainly shaking in our world. Just watch the news. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Hey, you might start singing if you realize how stable this unshakable kingdom is. And then Hebrews 13, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Because we're in, but we're not yet fully in. Already, but not yet. So we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continue to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Singing. So, oh man, are we going to sing on the day when it comes in its fullness? Until then, the song is rising. We've got to learn it by heart. Okay, it's, it's really easy to stop hearing the song of the redeemed because you're listening to all the chaos in this world and letting it get to you. That's why 
when we meet together weekly, it's a good reminder and reorientation. So if you're sad this morning, if you came in sad, if you're having a hard time, if you're discouraged, can you believe these things this morning? Can you trust in your everlasting rock? Can you believe that you have a strong city? Listen to Jesus, John 16. I've said these things to you that in me, you, in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. That's good news. <laughs> so precisely because fullness of peace is utterly assured forever, we can know peace that passes understanding, even in the face of very difficult circumstances. I've quoted this before, but I love this quote. I'm going to give it to you again. We'll see how this works. The fact that that strong city is ours and we're already spiritually residing there and we can't wait for it to come down in fullness. Listen to Peter Kreeft. He says, now suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have, free for the asking, your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy, throw in there perfect peace. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Less a scratch on a penny. So life in the city of God has begun, and the song is rising. But let's be realistic here. We still live in the city of man. There are many threats to our hope and our peace, and often a lot of reasons why we fall silent, why we get deaf to the song of the redeemed. So we need to learn to wait in hope. Second point, verses 8 to 21. The wait and the hope. Look at verse 7. We'll just catch the context because it's kind of like a hinge verse. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. It doesn't say we work for you. It says we wait for you. Remember Isaiah 25, 9. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Or look ahead to 26.12. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. Perfect peace we just read about. For you have indeed done for us all our works. We wait. Isaiah 64.4. Who's ever heard of a God like this who works for those who wait for him? All the other gods, you got to feed them. you got to make sure that they're propped up and happy. This God, you don't have to carry him around. You don't have to set him up. He carries you around. He works for us because we need him. So a couple weeks ago, we teased this out a little bit, this theme of waiting. But what do you do when your desires and your circumstances aren't coming together? Do you cave in and run to other gods who will satisfy your desire with quick fixes, city of man stuff? No, you wait. You wait on the Lord. So look at where the text goes from here. This is a powerful illusion to explain how we are to wait. Look at the end of verse 8. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. Waiting, yearning, 
earnestly seeking. So what does this all mean? Your name and remembrance of the desire of my soul. Well, it actually has its roots in Exodus 3. Do you remember the burning bush situation? Moses? Moses said to God, you know, God said, I want you to, you know, deliver my people from Egypt. And then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name, what shall I say to him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So God disclosed his special covenant name, Yahweh, I am who I am, the self-existent, self-sufficient one. This is who I am, and this is how I am to be remembered. Okay, same word here in Isaiah 26, 8. Now, what was Exodus 3 pointing toward? It was pointing toward the Exodus deliverance, where the I am delivered his people by signs and wonders and mighty acts of judgment on Egypt and deliverance. And they were to remember his mighty deliverance and actually participate, celebrate, remember that year after year with the Passover, right? And then what, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to tell their children about the mighty acts of the Lord. So what's going on here in Isaiah 26 is it's an allusion back to that. So they're waiting with longing for that day, which is the day when God will fulfill the promises of deliverance, but it's already and it's not yet, it's not yet. So we wait and we hope. He has delivered so powerfully. In the meantime, we wait. And as we wait, we long and desire, we, we dwell on his past works, and we want to see him work in mighty ways again in our day. Okay, so that's what that remembrance is, this longing and remembrance. I want to dwell on your mighty acts in the past. I don't want to run and trust in any other so-called saviors, I got to trust in you, so I'm going to meditate on your mighty works in the past. You are trustworthy. You'll fulfill your promises as I wait for you to bring the fulfillment of your promises. And I want to see new evidences of your deliverance worked out in my life. Rescue me from myself. Rescue me from my sin. So is God's name and remembrance what you desire? Do you long to see the final deliverance? Have you ever noticed how we, we do this? We love to remember and recount and celebrate great victories or deliverances. So I think this is actually a call to, to do that with God's works. We should ponder them. We should preach them to ourselves and others. We should pray that they would be really real to us. So here's what I mean. This is the way we're wired again. How do we react when we savor and we remember some great victory? Have you ever found yourself doing this when you get together um, with other people who know of the same thing? Do you remember how he did thus and such? 
you, you praise the heroic act or um, so cool when this happened. So military exploits are told and retold. Why do people go and see American Sniper? Great acts of deliverance. And then you go talk about it. Oh, did you see this movie? Did you know when he did this and this and this? Unbroken. Anybody read that book or see that movie? The book is way better than the movie. Um, wow. Do you see what, what he did? And you talk about it. So you like to remember and retell these stories of deliverance. Have you ever done this with verbal battles? Like have you ever seen a great debate and then you talk about the debate? Oh, did you see how he totally just demolished that guy? Or if someone dealt with a bully and silenced him, sometimes these little viral videos go around, you know, of, of someone just completely, you know, kind of dismant. what's the word? Um, anyway, winning in the argument. Family hero moments when a child was rescued, and then you ponder it, and you retell it, and you enjoy it and it's celebrated. So if we do that with those kinds of things, and we should, it's healthy. Why do we not ponder and remember and celebrate the mighty works of God like this? That's why we're doing this this morning. That's why we do this regularly. But why, don't, why isn't that more of, of what we ponder and what we share and enjoy together Maybe it's because they're just not as real to us as they ought to be. So maybe we need to pray. Would you make your victory at the cross, your mighty works in history and in my life, help me to stop and take time to remember them and not forget your benefits and how you've worked in my life so that his name and his remembrance would be the desire of our soul as we wait and hope in him and not run off to some other foe, refuge or help or strength or savior. So look at how verse 9 continues here. When your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he doesn't learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and doesn't see the majesty of the Lord. Oh Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Oh Lord, you will ordain peace for us. You've done for us all our works. So do you see how they're waiting? Yes, we should pray that the past works of God would be real to us and sweet and we'd ponder them and celebrate them, but also we long to see him act with justice and mercy and deliverance in our day as well. Please, Lord, act and work. Don't sit idly by when this situation is so unjust or ugly or whatever. So as they're waiting and their hope is in the Lord, they're praying that he would change things and display his glory through his acts of deliverance. I love it there. You've done for us all our works. <laughs> the Christian life is not what we do for God, but what he has done for us. Brother Chuck on the way in, he said, I was reading John 15 early this morning, and the Christian life is not about our love for God, but God's love for us. 
Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself as a propitiation for our sins. He's done for us all our works, so he gets the glory, all of it. So, verse 13, O Lord our God, other lords beside you have ruled over us. Israel had, oftentimes, they were kind of under the thumb of different nations, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. You are our Savior. You are our Deliverer. You're the one in whom we trust. Verse 14, they are dead. Nations, kingdoms, kings, they rise, they fall. They're dead, they won't live, they're shades. They will not arise. How foolish it would be to put your trust in them. To that end, you visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. So we could be tempted to trust in the powerful, the wealthy, the people with clout and those that can pull strings. They're just going to be in the grave just like us. They can't bring true peace. So there have been other so-called lords who've sought to rule over God's people here in this context, but God, the true king, wiped out the remembrance of them because they had no real name, no real glory. They're dead. They're shadows. But God's not a shadow. He's the substance. He's glorious. He's weighty. He has a name, glorious name, and so his memory will endure. The Lord is worth waiting for. He alone can bring us true and everlasting peace. So, human lords can't bring it, neither can we. We can't, by our own efforts, bring about the kind of peace we desire. Look at verse 16. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who wreathes and cries out in her pain when she's near to giving birth, so were we. Because of you, O Lord, we were pregnant, we wreathed but we've given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. We can't trust in ourselves to be our deliverers. We we often feel like we're self-sufficient. We can do it if we just work hard enough. No, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain, okay? And the ultimate frustration of our purposes is death. We can't avoid that. So, what happens to those who die before the fullness of peace is fulfilled? Do they miss out? Look at verse 19. Serious eternal hope here. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. It's a reference to the resurrection. Death can't even still the song of the redeemed because of the hope of the resurrection. So when we toil and work in our, you know, kind of blindness, thinking we're self-sufficient and independent, we give birth to wind, to nothing. We can't accomplish any real deliverance. But when the Lord works for us, even the dead can be raised. The earth gives birth to the dead. So look at how, once again, the Lord uses the first exodus deliverance as the illustration of how we wait on the Lord and trust in him. Um, We already saw the allusion to Exodus 3, the burning bush. Now look at verse 20, and there's a weird reference here. Um, As we draw this to a close and participate in the table together, there's an interesting illustration of how we wait on the Lord and trust in him. Look at verse 20. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. What? Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed. 
For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. What in the world does that mean? Does that make you think of anything? Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed. Passover. Waiting is like Israel in Goshen on the night of the Passover. So they were supposed to kill the Passover lamb, put the blood on the doorposts, and stay inside. Okay, as the angel of the Lord comes and does his work of judgment. And then Yahweh rescues his people in the greater exodus through Jesus by means of the blood of the lamb. So, again, this is already but not yet because there is a judgment day coming. Let's say that you're still alive when Jesus comes back. What is your hope going to be on that day? That's going to be a day of tribulation in a serious way. What is, where's your refuge going to be? Well, I, I was at Bethel most Sundays, and, you know, I gave pretty faithfully, and, like, <laughs> that's not going to be any refuge. I mean, our God is a consuming fire. If, if you stand before him on the final day, the only way you can handle that final day is if you are in Christ. Just like Noah was in the ark, just like the people of God were in those houses covered by the blood of the Lamb. The only way that we make it through the final judgment is if we're in Christ and His blood covers us. So that's the hiding and the hoping and the trusting that is in focus here. And the singing begins now because the Lord has already won the greatest victory and the final victory is utterly assured. We just need to wait in hope. So let's celebrate the great victory that Jesus has already won, which guarantees the victory that is to come. And let's feed on Christ's grace at the table and say, help me to sing of your mighty works and deliverance. Help me to run to you and wait and hope in you so that I know real peace and not run after these false faux pieces that the world offers. So if the men who are going to serve, if they could come forward here, we're going to celebrate the table together now.